0: Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 730 in the Pew Bible. So, Luke six forty six to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like, uh, who comes to me and hears my word, and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. If you're like me, and I think in this case you would be, when those you love Struggle, it hurts. And you want to do something about it. If a loved one is sick, you want to do what you can to help. If someone you love loses a loved one, you want to ease his or her pain. If a friend faces financial ruin or even just hard times, you want to help. If there's an accident and you're far away, you wish you were there to help. And so it's not surprising that when Joanne called me the other day and said there's been an accident and she started to describe that to me that I could hear in her voice her care and her compassion and her love and the desire she had to do something for someone that she cared about who was deeply hurting. Sometimes we can't do anything, but sometimes we can. Sometimes we're able to, in fact, uh, do something that we would consider preventive medicine. There are ways of preventing some accidents from happening. Accidents happen anyway, but sometimes we can actually do things to prevent accidents. Sometimes we can't, and when we can't, they end up oftentimes as tragedies. I remember years ago, um, I started uh, counseling every summer at a camp in California when I was a youth minister and there were various counselors who would come back every year and and would counsel together. And there was a a lady from Alaska named Rhonda Hood. And Rhonda, when I first met her, was unmarried and uh, was counseling at the camp. And then over the intervening years, she got married. And then there was one year, I hadn't seen her for several years, and I saw her at Pepperdine at the lectureship. And she was in the class that I was teaching. As it turned out, on suffering, I was talking about the pain of suffering and how that's something we have to deal with often in life. And and then Rhonda came up to me after class. You know, we hadn't seen each other for several years, and she said, "I just need to tell you what's happened in my life." And she explained to me how her her husband was a sandblaster. And I don't know anything about sandblasting equipment, but I know that there is uh, at least some equipment for which you have to have oxygen. You have to have air. And so there's a regulator and those kind of things that provide the person who's doing the sandblasting um, oxygen while he's working. And she explained to me that not long ago, her husband had gotten up early in the morning, unusually early in the morning, and had gone to work and started doing sandblasting. But there was a problem with the regulator and it wasn't functioning the way it should. And it ended up producing carbon monoxide and he died. Uh, from using this equipment and you know, he just passed out. He had no idea that the regulator was faulty. He passed out and, and still it was on his face and so he eventually, he died. Well, they found out later that there was a person who knew that that regulator was faulty. The person who had been working with the equipment the day before had realized that there was something wrong with it and he thought, I'll fix this tomorrow. And he had no idea that Rhonda's husband was going to come in the next morning early. He thought, well, I'll just get there early in the morning and we'll fix this. But Rhonda's husband went in too early, earlier than anyone would have known, and he ended up dying. It would have been a preventable accident. And there are so many times when we say, only if I would have known. If I would have known then what I know now, I could have fixed this. Isn't that true? How many times have you said that in your life? Oh, if only I knew then what I know now. How many times has that happened to me? How many times have I preached a sermon and thought to myself, if I would have known how that was going to come across, I would have said something different. Well, this morning is kind of like that in a sense. Um, I'm feeling this morning like there's no room for kidding around. I'm feeling this morning like I I just want the word of God to speak and for us to hear it without any soft peddling. Uh, There are times when a more direct approach needs to be taken, and maybe today is such a day just because of the text that we're reading. And here's it's not just the text that we're reading, it's also the experiences in my own life that I'm thinking about. You know, Robin and I are close to a family whose daughter has been going through drug abuse recovery for over two years. She's a young lady, same age as our son Ryan, and for two years she's been going through drug rehabilitation, and that's a tragedy. Robin and I are close to a family whose son has been going through drug abuse recovery himself for two years. He, again, is about the same age as our son, Adam. In fact, they were in school together. And that's a tragedy. Robin and I are close to a family whose son eventually became a drug user and a dealer and ended up in prison. In addition to all of that, he has completely thrown away his faith. He's now out of prison. He's actually starting to make a life for himself. Total atheist, however. And that's a tragedy. Robin and I are close to a family whose daughter died a year ago and whose funeral I performed as a direct result of her drug addiction lifestyle. Robin and I are close to a family whose daughter is now pregnant with her second child, born apart from marriage. And and these are just the ones that we're close to. Like If I stop to talk about all the other circumstances that I hear something about where there's been some kind of, of life that has gone down the tubes, destroyed because of the choices that have been made, the list could be, of course, much longer. And so it seems to me like this morning there's room for some preventative steps to be taken because, frankly, I'm heartbroken by the lives around me that keep being destroyed. It is not funny. It is not a laughing matter. And I want very much to see instead victory for real progress to be made. Now it might be after all that description of those families that we've known, that you think I'm going to talk this morning about family and children and raising kids or something, and I'm actually not. Where I want to go is not the whole solution, but it's part of it, and it starts actually with my admission to you this morning that I haven't always read the passage that we're looking at this morning as accurately as I should. It also starts with me saying to maybe some people right over here, these young people, you need especially to listen to the things that I want to say this morning. Because this morning as I talk to you, and to all of us, I want to make a point that I think is really valid, especially for you. And sometimes we don't take it as seriously as we should. Now, what I want to say about this misunderstanding of the text is this. You look at this passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, which is on page 730 in the Pew Bible. And we know this passage. I could have had, I almost had Peter sing this verse this morning. You could have sung this, couldn't you, Peter? The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? Or the wise man, or the foolish man built his house upon the sand, And the rain comes tumbling down. And what happens to the house at the end of the story? The house goes smash or splat or something like that. Okay? And we could have sung that. But I'm convinced that that is actually not what this story is about. I don't think this is about the idea of building your foundation on Jesus Christ. Surprise. That's what the song says. That's what we think because we sing that song. But I'm not sure that's what it means. And so as we read that story this morning, here's what I think it does mean. I think that Jesus' point is actually a very simple one. And it's this. Putting his teaches, teachings into practice. Obedience is like the security of building your house on a firm foundation. And so I would say that this parable, this story about the wise man, is not so much about making Jesus your foundation. But instead, that this story is about whether or not you choose, in response to Christ, to be obedient. And so not putting the teachings of Jesus into practice is like building your house on sand. Notice how the story starts out. You call me Lord, Lord. Do you notice that? That's interesting to me. They know something about who Jesus is. And so the question is not who is the foundation for your life, as we so often, I think, think this parable teaches. Instead, the question is, are you wise enough to put into practice obedience to the teachings of Jesus? Because that, I think, is what he really wants from us. Not just because he's a law keeper who wants us to keep laws. But because he knows that that's absolutely what's best for us. Now this is interesting. We've been talking a lot about discipleship and we've been talking about the Great Commission some. Have you read the Great Commission lately? It goes like this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's interesting. Now, I don't know how well this is going to be received this morning, but it seems to me like this whole notion of obedience is actually really, really important. That all of us have to think seriously about what it means for us to be obedient to Jesus. Now, in our world, that's not always very popular. And in our church, sometimes that's not so popular. And so, I sometimes hear things like this. The church just wants to hear the good news. Don't give us that hard stuff. And I get that. We want to hear good news. Of course we do. Or I hear something like, we shouldn't be talking so much about our obligations and obedience. Have you ever thought that? Maybe you have. And that's okay, that's not a horrible thing to think. Focus on the joy we have in Christ. I want to, I want to smile. I want to be happy. I want to be all that Jesus wants me to be and to live the life of joy that Christ wants me to live. Focus on the relationship we need to have with Jesus, not command-keeping, and I get that too. Well, those are the kind of things I sometimes hear, and I think there's a good reason for that. I get that. But there, I have to admit, there is a point, or there is part of me that actually wrestles with some of that. And I want to say at certain points, what... Part is it about teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you that we don't understand or that we think somehow it's safe for us to ignore. Because sometimes I'm afraid we're there. Sometimes I think in our own personal lives, it's easy for us to say, "Ah, I'm not that worried about all that law-keeping And those obligations. I don't know if you agree with me this morning or not when I say that. But it seems to me like I have some things on my side when it comes to talking about obedience and how crucial it is. And so this is part of it. It seems to me that the passage at the end of the Great Commission and also the one we're talking about today is fairly clear. When it comes to asking the question about righteousness and obedience, that's where God wants us to build our foundation. It's not just, I want to build my house on Jesus and his lordship. It's certainly that. But this story seems to not just be saying that, that we need to build our house on Jesus. Instead, it's obedience to the word of Christ that scripture seems to be calling us to. We need to know what Jesus says and then do what Jesus says in order, he says, to be wise. And to do something else perhaps then is not wise. And so the first thing it just I, I want to say is that Scripture teaches this. Scripture says that obedience is part of the package and in fact a major part of the package. Can you imagine if we read the Great Commission? Let me back up to that. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What if we just said, well, that's not important, that that part about baptizing them or teaching them. It's not that important, that stuff about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of you, if I said that on a Sunday morning, you would all go, what are you doing with the scriptures? That doesn't work. You can't do that. And I think then that the part about teaching them to obey Everything I've commanded you also has to be in there if we're going to be true to the scriptures. In fact, part of the reason why I'm kind of teaching on this this morning is because I recognize the call, the obligation that I have as an evangelist and a preacher to teach the whole counsel of God. Like it'd be so easy for me to ignore the part about obedience but the moment that I ignore that, I'm no longer true to the word of Christ. I'm no longer true to the word of God. And neither are we in our lives when that ceases to be important for us. And so it seems to me like that's something we need to do. A second thing that really points me in that direction, and I think this is so evident, but, but sometimes we lose it, and that is that obedience is actually good news, not bad. Isn't that the case? Like, why does obedience have to be thought of as bad news? It can actually be good news, great news. The fact that somebody is being what God wants them to be. Jesus appears to have thought it a very positive teaching. He equates obedience in the parable about the houses built on the foundations. He equates them directly with wisdom. And he says, the person who is obedient to my word is wise. He calls wisdom and building your house on that foundation, I think, a good thing. And in fact, I think there's something profound about the freedom that comes with genuine obedience. We've all heard it said many times, and I think it's true. As parents, your kids want actually to be disciplined. You ever heard that? Your kids actually want to be disciplined. Now, I wrestle with that one. I probably, if I was a little kid, and you came to me and said, my father uses corporal punishment. And do I really want that corporal punishment? Do I, am I really longing for this kind of discipline? Most kids, I think, would probably say no. I'm not very interested in that. But if you ask them whether or not the relationship that they have with their parents is important to them, do they want parents who will actually guide them and teach them and lead them and sometimes require from them obedience? If those kids were mature enough and able to, I think they would say, Oh, yeah, I do need it. I have to have that. And I do think that there are times when teenagers ask their parents for permission to do something and deep inside somewhere, and I may, maybe it's deep, they long for their parents to say no. Because I think obedience is in that case actually good news. And the freedom that comes with being obedient to God, I think, is great news. The freedom that I feel as an individual when I know that I'm being obedient to God the way that He wants is an incredibly uplifting, encouraging kind of event in my life. That's not oppression. I don't ever feel like God is beating me down. God is my enemy. He wants me to be miserable. He requires of me obedience because He wants to kill all my fun. Of course not. My relationship with him is alive when I'm being obedient before him. When I say, yes, God, I want to do your will, and I do it, oh, what a freeing, blessed experience that is in my life. And so obedience, I think, is not, good, is not bad news, but in fact is good news, a blessing from God. And then I would say this, obedience is directly connected to relationship with Christ, obedience doesn't stand on its own. It's simply the the keeping of rules. It's always, and in this case, it is in the context of relationship. In obedience, we don't just say, Lord, Lord. We mean it. It's interesting, again, that he says, you say, Lord, Lord, to me. The They knew who he was. The problem was they didn't have the relationship with him that they need to have in order for that obedience to come out in saying, Lord, Lord, you are indeed my Lord. And when I see you as my Lord, and we have that relationship where you're my Lord and I'm your child, obedience flows out of that relationship. It's absolutely a relationship-grounded thing. We know him as Lord. And because we know him as Lord, that fosters obedience within us. And we relate to him as Lord. And it brings out relationship and, and therefore obedience within us. So we follow him as Lord because of that relationship. And then our be- obedience is not to a law, but to our Lord with whom we share relationship. And I think that's so true. And that's exactly, again, what this teaches our obedience is not to a law our obedience is to a lord with whom we have relationship and then god's call to us to be obedient is nothing less than an act of grace you know that's the accusation if you preach obedience then you must be legalistic if you call for righteousness You must not be full of grace. There must be judgment there. And I would say exactly the opposite is the case. What could God do to us if He wasn't gracious? What would life be in our relationship with God? If he didn't choose to be filled with grace when he looks at us, isn't his call of obedience to us part of the, the, the core of our relationship? Where he calls out of us something that he knows is a great blessing? Where he requires, yes but participates with us in something that will encourage us and lift us up. And isn't that, in fact, a grace-filled act when he says, here are my clear expectations about what I want from you and your life? I find that, rather than judgmental, life-giving. I find there the opportunity for real grace to come into my life when God says, I choose not to destroy you. Instead, I want to give you a way to live In relationship with me, that will allow us to have the kind of relationship and for you to be the kind of person that I have created you to be. That is a grace filled act on God's part. And so, rather than supposing that obedience is something harsh, something negative, I think it's grace filled, I think it's grounded in relationship. I think it's something that we absolutely need in order for us to be what God wants us to be. And so, if the preacher calls us to obedience, if he says to our young people, disobedience is not worth it, you dare not play the world's game, the stakes are too high. If he says to them, take your parents' instruction with seriousness, don't even flirt with the path that leads to destruction. If he says to young men, the disobedience of taking your faith lightly, of allowing the world's attentions to draw you away is a dangerous road. If he says to our young women, don't sacrifice your virginity. If he says to our young men, don't allow material success to be your God. If the preacher says, we must obey God rather than men. If he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but do what it says. And if he begs his hearers, if they're steeped in the world's ways to reject the world and choose obedience to Jesus Christ. Then he does this in response to the grace that God has shown him, not only in the forgiveness he's received in Christ, but in the call to obedience that he also hears from Christ. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to call us to obedience specifically because of the grace that I have received in Jesus. It's His love for me, His grace shown in my life that requires all of us to consider what it means to be obedient in Jesus. I don't know if you've been following the, uh, the World Series at all. There's a a player in the World Series who plays for the Texas Rangers named Josh Hamilton. You can go on the Major League Baseball website and look up what's going on with Josh Hamilton and, and in the World Series. And there's there also the story of his life and where he's been. Drafted number one, the first player picked in the 1999 baseball draft. Drafted by the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Played with them a little while. Received a huge signing bonus. Had incredible potential. Some people said he's the most talented baseball player they've ever seen. And there's scouts who say that kind of thing. Within two or three years, he was completely a washout. He had lost all his money. He was uh, at the, the, the bottom in terms of his drug addiction. Life for him was absolutely awful. He'd lost everything that he had, all that potential down the drain. He stumbled one night to an old coach, not actually a coach of his, but a coach that he knew. He stumbled up to this guy's house, knocked on the door, tried to explain to the coach who he was, said, you know, my name's Josh Hamilton. I was number one draft pick. The, The coach was thinking, yeah, right. His daughter came down the stairs and started hearing the story and said, Dad, that's true. I went, I went to high school with him. I know this story. This fellow is indeed the number one draft pick. He's all that he says he is. The coach took him in. He started sharing with him about Christ. Hamilton eventually married the coach's daughter. He st- started doing very well in baseball. Now, I, I wish I could just go on and up and up from there. He eventually had a relapse... He got divorced, stumbles again, not to a coach's house, but this time to his grandmother's house. She talks to him again about his faith in Christ. He becomes, this point, really what God wants him to be. And the rest really is kind of, the rest is history. Um, you know, it could be that the Texas Rangers, if they win the World Series, it'll be because Hamilton started hitting. Last night he hit a huge home run and they won. The first time he knew who Jesus Christ was, the first time he heard the gospel, the first time he started to do what God wanted him to do, the second time he has been obedient and he chooses in response to what God has done for him to be obedient to Christ And so he testifies about what Jesus has done for him. And he works at being obedient. He actually has a full-time babysitter, basically. And he's there to make sure that Hamilton makes no mistakes. Because Hamilton knows he needs that. And so he makes sure that there's somebody there watching him and protecting him and just having a relationship with him so that he doesn't make mistakes because for him right now, obedience is everything and sometimes we need to be thinking about the way that we live and do what it takes to be obedient to Christ. And for those of you, you young people, like as you grow older, Lisa Ason, Trevor, Megan, all of you, Kelly as we grow older, as we move on through life, we have to be responsive to the call on God's heart for us to live righteous lives. And it is simply not good enough for us to say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says. We have, the, we have it within ourselves because God's spirit lives within us. To live as he wants us to live. And so this morning I like I know that I'm talking to somebody today who has sin in your life. I know it. And you know that there are things in your life that have to change. They have to change. They have to be different. God wants them to be different. He wants you to be pure and you know you're not. And God wants he longs for your obedience. The things that we talked about earlier in terms of it being grounded in relationship I think are so crucial. But it may start with you recognizing that this is no game. That God really is serious about you building your life on the foundation of obedience to his word. And that flowing out of that obedience is the greatest life that you could possibly imagine. To the point where pff, obedience, it just happens. You're living free in your relationship with Jesus. This life of love. This life of God caring for you. And in that mutuality, obedience just happens because you're living as in that relationship that God wants you to have. Oh, I pray, I pray that if you're stuck this morning in a life that's not obedient to God, that you open yourself to his call to be obedient and recognize just how important this is for you. I know it's important for me. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a world that constantly suggests to us that we compromise. Lord, we live in a world that sometimes says that our behavior simply doesn't matter. It's not true. It's not true at all. We know, God, even in our Inability to do right. Call it hypocrisy if you will. We know that in our hypocrisy that you want from us a different way of living. And I pray that you would, would help us to see how important that is. Call us to that this morning. Lift us up to a higher standard. Help us not to compromise with respect to the teachings we hear from Jesus, but help us to obey all the teachings of Christ and to live the kind of life of discipleship you want us to live. Father, take away the barriers, the obstacles, the, the habits, the lack of clarity. Take away those things and, and put into our lives all every person, every message, every teaching, every spiritual experience that we need in order to live as you want us to live. Help us to take obedience seriously in the context of the relationship that we have with you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.